With his unique perspective on the medical legal system, here's Victor Cotton. Welcome to the Law and Medicine Podcast. Today's topic is organized medicine's misguided approach to tort reform. As part of the healthcare debate in Washington, D.C., the folks in organized medicine have introduced an argument for tort reform. The connection between healthcare reform and tort reform is as follows. If we pass tort reform, it will reduce our risk of being sued. We will therefore be less inclined to practice defensively, and by reducing the practice of defensive medicine, we will save healthcare dollars. And to some extent, I agree with that logic. The problem I have is that the tort reform being proposed by organized medicine isn't going to reduce the practice of defensive medicine, and it's therefore not going to save any healthcare dollars. Unfortunately, what it will do is harm the most vulnerable members of society, the most vulnerable of our patients, and for that reason, I believe that the approach is badly misguided. Organized medicine's proposal has two main components, and these will sound familiar because they're the same things organized medicine always proposes. First, they want to cap non-economic damages, and I'll explain what that means. And second, they want to limit attorney's fees, which I find ironic because they simultaneously complain that physician's fees are being limited. But that's not my point today. Let me explain why all of this is a bad idea. If a patient sues one of us and proves that we committed malpractice, the law entitles that person to receive money for whatever injuries he or she suffered. And that money falls into two categories. Economic damages, which are tangible things like lost wages and medical bills, and non-economic damages, which are intangible things like emotional distress, pain and suffering, and so on. And while economic damages are fairly predictable, non-economic damages are somewhat of a wild card. If the patient was making $50,000 a year and he can't work for the next 10 years, then his economic damages are about $500,000. However, the value of his pain and suffering isn't as easy to quantify. A jury could say that his pain is worth $50,000, or they could say that it's worth $50 million. And this creates a significant amount of risk in defending cases. So organized medicine wants to cap the amount of non-economic damages so that no matter how much pain you have, the maximum you can get is $250,000. If we apply this to my previous example, where the patient couldn't work for 10 years, he would get $500,000 for his lost wages and a maximum of $250,000 for his pain and suffering, meaning that no matter what happens, the maximum payment would be $750,000. And there's no question that this makes lawsuits more predictable. There's less risk in defending them. It's good for the insurance market, which leads to lower premiums, which will benefit the physicians who pay those premiums. So if you're a physician, capping non-economic damages clearly provides an economic benefit to you. There's no question about that. However, it does not reduce the practice of defensive medicine, and it harms patients. The price that we pay for a $250,000 cap is the harm that we do to patients. And that harm targets the most vulnerable patients by making it difficult for them to even file a lawsuit. And I'm not saying I'm for that or against it. I'm simply saying that's the way it is. I'll show you what I mean. 
Let's suppose that a healthy newborn dies as a result of malpractice, and it was clearly malpractice. Well, that infant didn't have a job, and he doesn't have much in the way of medical bills because he died. So his economic damages are minimal. The primary loss is the grieving of his family, which would be both legitimate and severe, but organized medicine wants to cap that grieving at $250,000. And if we do that, it's going to be hard for the family to find a lawyer, because plaintiff lawyers work on contingency, taking a percentage of whatever they win. And even if the lawyer takes 40%, 40% of $250,000 is only $100,000 for what will probably be several years of work, and there's no guarantee the lawyer's going to get anything. So, assuming he wins, and he might not, the lawyer's maximum upside is $100,000, and organized medicine wants to cap attorney fees, which means that he might not even get that much. The end result is that if we cap non-economic damages at $250,000, we effectively close the courthouse doors to large groups of people. If the patient is an infant, if the patient is retired, if the patient is jobless, homeless, mentally retarded, disabled, demented, or otherwise disadvantaged, and that person dies as a result of malpractice, his or her family won't have much in the way of legal recourse because a lawsuit won't generate enough money for a lawyer to pursue it. So the price that society pays for a tight cap on non-economic damages is to curtail the legal rights of the most vulnerable patients. And again, I'm not saying I'm for that or against it. It's just a simple statement of fact. These caps also create a perverse system where there's less legal risk in allowing infants and elderly patients to die rather than keeping them alive. Because if they live in a disabled condition, they'll have ongoing medical bills which will raise the value of their cases. But if they die, they've got no medical bills which lowers the value of their cases and thereby reduces our risk of being sued. So under this type of system, there will be situations where we could reduce our legal risk by letting patients die. And while I firmly believe that most clinicians would not succumb to that type of thinking, there are people in the healthcare system who would, and they would undoubtedly pressure us to change our approach. Despite these clearly negative effects, the folks in organized medicine say that their proposal will be good for patients. So restricting patients' legal rights and creating incentives that favor death are good things for patients. I don't think many patients would agree with that. It sounds like medical paternalism on steroids. But let's assume that it's a price worth paying. Sure, a few disadvantaged patients get tramped on and maybe a few of them die, but it saves healthcare dollars and that's what really matters. The problem is that it doesn't save healthcare dollars. Tort reform as it's being proposed will not save healthcare dollars. Now, there's no question that defensive medicine is a real phenomenon, and it definitely costs money. It's been estimated that ordering tests and treatments just to cover ourselves adds at least 5% to the cost of healthcare. The problem is that this type of tort reform doesn't reduce the practice of defensive medicine and therefore doesn't save any money. About 15 years ago, the state of Texas was in a malpractice crisis. So they enacted tort reform, which included a $250,000 cap on non-economic damages. And the number of lawsuits fell by more than half. 
However, a follow-up study published in the Journal of Empirical Legal Studies found that there had been no impact on the cost of health care, and this was true even in the areas of Texas where the malpractice crisis had been the worst. So significant tort reform, which dramatically reduced the number of lawsuits, didn't save any health care dollars, even in the places where the crisis had been the worst. And the follow-up period on that study was seven years, more than enough time for physicians to realize that the legal landscape had changed. So how do we explain this? By examining why physicians practice defensively. Defensive medicine is a response to the threat of being sued. And because being sued is widely regarded as being a substantial and severe event, our response to the threat of being sued is driven by the basic instinct of self-preservation. When I'm faced with a severe threat, I respond out of self-preservation and my reaction is all or nothing. Let me show you what I mean. Let's suppose we're in a malpractice crisis and the odds are that I'll be sued once every three years. Now, in response to that threat, I will have a certain tendency to practice defensively. Now, let's suppose we pass tort reform. My risk of being sued drops by 50%, and the new odds are that I'll be sued once every six years. So my risk has been cut in half, which is exactly what happened in Texas, but I don't think that's going to improve my comfort level because I still face a very severe threat. And as long as that threat is out there, hidden and poised to spring upon me, I'm going to guard against it. And as a result, we don't have a linear relationship between the statistical risk of the threat and the behavioral response to that threat. It's akin to letting 10 tigers loose in a suburban neighborhood and then measuring the defensive behavior of the residents. And we might find that each resident implemented 10 defensive measures. If we then remove half of the tigers, the statistical risk of being eaten would drop by 50%, but only a fool would ease up on his defensive measures. In fact, because the threat is so severe, I suspect that everyone would continue to protect themselves at a very high level until all of the tigers were gone. And that's why capping non-economic damages didn't reduce the practice of defensive medicine in Texas. If we want to reduce defensive medicine, we have to address the threat and the fear that's driving it. And based on my experience of interacting with physicians who are in the middle of lawsuits, the primary concern that they all articulate is that they will lose their house. We practice defensively because we fear the loss of personal assets, our house, our kids' college money, our retirement money, and so on. And even though it's extremely rare for that to occur, it is possible. And that possibility triggers fear, which drives the practice of defensive medicine. And organized medicine's proposal isn't going to have any effect on that. Capping non-economic damages will reduce my risk of being sued, but the underlying threat to my house will still be there. And as long as that threat is there, I'll practice defensively, which is exactly what they found in Texas.
If we want to reduce the practice of defensive medicine, we need to remove the threat to my house, my car, and my bank account. We need to remove the personal liability aspect of medical malpractice. And if we do that, there's a chance that physician behavior will gradually change. It might take decades, and I doubt that defensive medicine will ever completely disappear because there are other threats like the State Board of Medicine. But if we remove the primary threat, the response to that threat should gradually dissipate. Now, in case you think this is a radical concept, I will point out that it already exists right here in the United States. Physicians who work for the VA system and physicians who work at federally qualified health centers already enjoy this protection under the Federal Tort Claims Act. So why not just extend it to everyone? In return, we could mandate that physicians carry some minimum level of insurance. But the reality is that most physicians now work for big corporations, and when a physician gets sued, so does the corporation, so we can certainly put enough money in place to compensate injured patients. Organized medicine's proposal will harm the most vulnerable members of our society, create incentives which favor death over life, and it won't save any healthcare dollars. In contrast, if we extend the protections of the Federal Tort Claims Act to all healthcare providers, we have a reasonable chance of reducing the practice of defensive medicine without taking any legal rights from our patients. Thanks for listening to me today. You have been listening to Victor Cotton, physician, attorney, and founder of Law & Medicine. If you'd like to learn more about us or support our efforts, we invite you to visit our website at lawandmed.com. We offer a variety of online educational courses for which you can earn Category 1 CME credit. Many of our courses can be used to meet your malpractice insurance company's requirements for a policy discount. And if you receive a CME allowance from your employer, we can provide you with a receipt which can be used to obtain reimbursement. This has been a production of Law & Medicine, Hershey, Pennsylvania. All rights are reserved.